another consequence of new people coming each day is to let them know about what we've been talking about before they came. And uh, in a way, when you have a traditional form of practice, it often involves telling people about what was going on before they came. The practice of, you know, their ancestors. So in the, in the family style that I'm devoted to, or in the, the tradition that I'm devoted to, is a bodhisattva a lineage, a lineage of, yeah, of beings who are living in order to help others, or they aspire to that. And um, so I started out by talking about aspiration during this retreat. And I suggested that bodhisattvas are aspirational beings, vow beings. And um, They, they are basically their, their, the roots of their practice is aspiration. They, uh, the roots of their effort and energy uh, is aspiration. And the root of their practice is the energy for practice which arises from aspiration. And uh, bodhisattvas take care of aspiration uh, repeatedly. They repeatedly, they again and again take care of their aspirations. To the point, they aspire, their aspiration is to reach a point where their aspirations are cared for continuously. And uh, in, the, in the stories of bodhisattvas, usually they start out by having aspiration, but they're not, from the start, they're not continuously caring for their aspirations. Sometimes they get distracted. But they are born of aspiration, and they develop aspiration and by developing their aspiration, they realize their aspiration. In the process of developing their aspiration, they become bodhisattvas. Just just having an aspiration to live for the welfare of all beings, although all bodhisattvas have that aspiration, you're not really a bodhisattva if you just have the aspiration and don't take care of it. You have to take care of it in order to be a bodhisattva or even to take away, say, you, but the caring for the aspiration is the bodhisattva. Not that I'm a bodhisattva, but if there's caring for the aspiration to live for the welfare of all beings, that caring becomes a bodhisattva.
during this retreat and many other times people say, ask me if I have any advice for them in their practice or their life. And in a way, my often at that moment, especially if I just met them recently, my advice is for them to look inward and see what their aspiration is. I don't exactly suggest what to practice other than finding out what the aspiration is. Once they get in touch with their aspiration, and if they tell me, then I can say, well, what practices go with that? And then they could tell me what they think. And I could say, oh, great, I agree. Those practices go with your aspiration. And I, I have some other ones, too, you might want to hear about that go with your aspiration. And then people do look sometimes. Right, right when I ask them, they look and they don't find it. They say, I don't see what my aspiration is. Again, aspiration doesn't just mean a wish. It means a great wish, an immense wish. So sometimes people look inward and they, they see some few little wishes, but they don't see the big one or a big one. And actually what I'm asking about, what's the biggest one? What's the greatest one? What's the greatest, the ultimate, the final aspiration of your life? I ask that. And people look and they say, I don't see it. Sometimes they look and they do see it. And then they tell me and we, then we go to town. We go downtown. <laughs> and I say, well, just keep asking. And when you find it, let me know. And I'll be happy to help you with it. I'm also willing to help with small wishes, too, like having lunch. But I'm primarily, first of all, I'm asking about what's the big one? And um, so I'm, I'm introducing the new people to this issue of aspiration. At the beginning of Sashin's at, the, at Zen Center, particularly at Green Gulch Farm, in our Sashin admonitions, we also say that Sashin's a time to be silent and still. It's an opportunity to discover, perhaps anew, your deep, great aspiration. For some people, it's an opportunity to discover it for the first time. For sometimes, it's people to discover it again and to clarify it during the sitting and to deepen it and realize it even during the retreat. And I, again, I, I mentioned I completely accept if you can't find it or if your aspiration is not the same as some bodhisattvas. Like someone might say, my aspiration is to be an excellent parent. That's my greatest aspiration. Okay, So then what practices go with that? And sometimes people say that and they say, and I can see that actually 
the aspiration to be a really good parent, I can see that it, it could expand to be a really good friend of all beings. It could expand. But right now, I'm very clear that I re my most the thing that's most important to me right now is to be a really good parent, a really good spouse, a really good daughter, a really good son. It's, you know, it's often said that Buddha sees all beings as her children, so Buddha also aspires to be a very good parent, giving her children the very best, the true Dharma. Once again, the root of heroic effort, the root of enthusiasm for the practice of the Buddha's teaching, the root of it is aspiration. The root of energy, of effort, is aspiration. And the root of aspiration is to contemplate um, karmic cause and effect. The root of aspiration is to contemplate stories of karma. So you, like, you think about your own life, and you think about what you've done. You think about stories you've heard about other people's lives and what they've done. And you think, oh, when they did this, that went, things went, they seemed to go that way. And when they did this, things seemed to go that way. Hmm. So I aspire to that story. And I, I, that other story I don't aspire to. I, I aspire to be compassionate to that story, but I don't want to go the path of you know, non-diligence and non-compassion. I don't want to go that. I don't want to do the story of non-compassion. I want to do the story of compassion. I've heard about those stories. I aspire to those stories, those stories of great compassion. And also, I like that in the stories of great compassion, the great compassion in the story I heard open to reality and, and true understanding. And then this compassionate being not only was compassionate, but very skillful. That's a story I like. I aspire to stories like that. So then the energy comes from that aspiration. And again, I said something like, bodhisattvas repeatedly take care of their aspirations. So this is something that is good to do repeatedly. And the, and the cycle of the repetition is good to shorten it. It's good to have high frequency refreshment of your uh, greatest wish in life. Like, every day, mm, that would be good. Every hour, every minute, every second, that's something to work up to.
Every month? Every month is still good. If you can do it once a month, that's great. As a matter of fact, it's traditional from early, one of the first ceremonies, or perhaps the first ceremony in the Buddhist tradition, was for the monks to get together twice a month, and lay people could join too, and reiterate their ethic vows. And in the Zen school, in Zen monasteries, uh, in Asia and now in America, once a month or twice a month, they still get together and they reiterate their bodhisattva vows. If you remind me, I'll go into detail about that ceremony later, the, the, the ceremony of the whole sangha getting together and refreshing the aspirational uh, vows of bodhisattvas. So if you can find your aspiration, great. And then, in addition, think about some regular pattern of refreshment. Because if you don't refresh it, it can get lost. This splendid, this splendid aspiration, which is a source of great effort to practice virtue, if you don't take care of it, it can get lost. As I often mention, when you first, when the when this aspiration first appears, it's like a candle flame, and a, a light breeze can blow it out. A moment of inattention, it can get blown out. But if you take care of it, the flame grows. And uh, yeah. And then when the frame grows, when uh, you blow on it, it just gets stronger. The kind of beings that become Buddhas are aspirational beings. They don't exactly walk around saying, I'm helping people, I'm a bodhisattva, I'm a great compassionate being. They don't necessarily think that. They could, it's possible. Like if somebody walks up to them and says, you are one great compassionate being, they might think, oh, am I? Hmm, maybe so. They might. But what they, although they may not think that they're great compassionate beings, they aspire to be great compassionate beings. The beings who become Buddhas are beings who aspire to be Buddhas for the welfare of others. They don't necessarily think they are. They're not actually into, they're not so concerned about their status. They're mostly concerned about their aspiration. And as a result of taking care of their aspiration, they do um, go through various states. Another thing I wanted to remind the, the, the new arrivals, not remind, inform the new arrivals about, is that um, the practice of the, 
the bodhisattva practices of taking care of bodhisattva aspiration. Uh, back in India, like 2,000 years ago, the practices to take care of the aspirations were called, um, sometimes called the six basic bodhisattva practices. And then sometimes they're called the three basic, uh, the threefold ethics of bodhisattvas. So the six practices are giving, ethics, patience, enthusiasm, which is, arises from the aspiration, concentration, and wisdom. So those are the practices which have uh, been encouraged for about 2,000 years in the great vehicle of the bodhisattva, to take care of the aspiration and to bring the aspiration to realization as complete enlightenment. And in this Zen school, uh, these practices are called Zazen. These six bodhisattva practices are called Zazen. So Zazen is how we take care of this, aspir- this bodhisattva aspiration and bring it to realization. So within Zazen are the six perfections. Within Zazen are the threefold precepts. Threefold precepts is the precept of restraint, where you work with the forms and ceremonies of the tradition in order to eliminate any kind of delusion in the practice. And the second bodhisattva precept is to gather all wholesome practices which means to practice the six practices of bodhisattvas. And the third bodhisattva pure precept is to embrace and sustain and develop and benefit all beings. So those three practices and those six practices are included in what we call zazen. And also I said before that these practices of caring for the You've got the aspiration, you care for the aspiration, and caring for the aspiration by doing these practices. These practices lead to entry into reality. They, they lead to an initial entry into the reality, an initial enlightenment. And then, f- and then the they are the cause of the initial enlightenment, and then they are the effect of the initial enlightenment. So after initial entry into reality, as a result of that, you continue these practices which were the cause of it. So similarly, there's a kind of zazen which has not yet entered reality. So usually we say beginners. They still uh, are entertaining some delusions. And by practicing, by, by, by practicing these bodhisattva practices, they enter into 
reality and they let go of their delusions. So there's a zazen which is supporting entry into reality, and then there's a zazen which is entry into reality. And then there's a zazen which is doing the practices of bodhisattvas. The entry into reality is actually not exactly the, uh, these practices. It's just simply reality. And based on that reality, you do these six practices. The six practices are rather social, like generosity. It's rather social. You practice it towards yourself and towards others. And of course, ethics. You practice telling the truth and not being possessive, being generous, not, not having ill will, not taking what's not given, not slandering anybody, always speaking in a way that encourages people, not putting yourself above people, not misusing sexuality. These kinds of practices are rather social. They're the way bodhisattvas relate to themselves and other beings. Being patient with hardship in our social life. Being patient with and, and forbearing when people attack us and insult us. And also being patient with the teaching and so on. All these practices are social practices. Even wisdom is a social practice as you're practicing it. As a result of this, you enter reality. In entering reality, it's actually rather, it's not exactly antisocial, it's just inner. It's an inner experience where you are just simply in accord with reality. You're doing a practice which is, which is simply the way things are. It's not, some, it's not I say you're doing a practice, but actually you, a practice is realized which is simply the way things are, which is you being the way things are. You're not doing it, the practice anymore. Before that, you maybe were doing the practice. There was you in the practice. Now there's just the practice, and the practice is, is just the way things are. And you're nothing in addition to that. You are the way things are. We are the way you, things are. We're the way things are together. We're just suchness, and there's no practice in addition to suchness. The practice and suchness are not uh, separate. And then, based on that, we become social again and start practicing generosity, ethics, patience, enthusiasm, concentration, wisdom again. Now, one thing I just want to mention to you is that as you, this, this, uh, this temple has, seems to have a strong um, intimacy with uh, Soto Zen, a lineage of Zen transmitted from China to Japan to America, and also 
Uh, a, a I see the, there's a picture of Suzuki Roshi back in the library, which people offer incense to. So it looks like Suzuki Roshi is important for this Sangha, but also Katagiri Roshi is important for this Sangha. Because he was close friends with Suzuki Roshi, and also uh, Tia, your abiding teacher, is very devoted to Katagiri Roshi's teaching. Those two teachers were very sincere students of a Japanese master named Dogen. Okay? I think Dogen's great too. I think he's really great. And one and I and, and you and uh, you chant here some of his teachings, I noticed. And I I encourage you to chant when you don't usually chant. But in the in the Fukan Zazengi he says that the Zazen he teaches is not just concentration. In other words, the Zazen he teaches is not just it's not he doesn't say just, but anyway, I just say He's saying, the zazen I teach is not just the zazen you do before you enter into reality. But some of you who haven't entered into reality, I understand you, you will be practicing zazen prior to entering reality. So I'm kind of teaching that, but not really. Really, the, the teaching of zazen I'm teaching is the zazen after entering reality. So it's a, I just sort of think it might help you to understand that Dogen is actually primarily teaching Zazen after enlightenment or during enlightenment. He's teaching Zazen during enlightenment, which is after initial enlightenment, now you're in enlightenment, and the Zazen practice that you do in enlightenment is the one he's emphasizing. And I think he understands, in a way, that some people do not understand that they're practicing in enlightenment. He probably sees that they really are, but they don't understand. So he describes uh, what it's like to practice Zazen in enlightenment, understanding that some people, in a sense, uh, are practicing Zazen from another perspective. Another thing I'd like to say basically again to remind myself and the newcomers and the old timers that the ba a basic principle that I've offered is by being compassionate towards unreality, you enter reality. Once entering reality by being kind to unreality, there is a continual, continual practice, but now the, the continued practice is compassion towards reality.
And compassion towards reality means you let go of reality. You don't cling to it. And again, you open to unreality and enter reality. So it's a very simple statement. Thorough compassion towards delusion, you enter enlightenment. Entering enlightenment, you continue practicing. Now, supported by enlightenment, your practice of compassion will be more and more unhindered. So your pra- the practice of compassion now is applied to the situation of enlightenment, which means you don't cling to it. You're generous with it. You give it away. Your practice of all the bodhisattva practices is generous. You don't hold on to any of them. You, you totally practice them and give them away. You give them away because you totally practice them. And now you can totally practice them because you're not separate from them anymore. And you never were, and now you realize it. So the practice is more joyful, more unhindered, more thorough. And in the thoroughness, you keep letting it go and entering reality. And entering reality, you continue to enter the practices. I just want to share with you that uh, various things come up in my mind which I would like to share with you. And I'm thinking, should I tell you now and then and repeat it again tomorrow when new people come? Or should I wait till they come and tell them at the same time I tell you? <laughs> A lot of things like that popping up here. So there's a, there's a little bit of, should I save this for later? because I I won't want the people who come on Saturday not to hear this. I said to the Jisha yesterday, 
in silence. <laughs> Somebody up there likes me. That was referring to um, how we, we thought we had missed service last night, but actually we were right on time. <laughs> and I would mentioned to him that that's the name of a movie, I think, that was made in the 50s. And it was a movie, a, a fictionalized version of an excellent athlete, a boxer named Graziano. What was his first name? Hmm? Yeah. His nickname was Rocky. And I, uh, and I said, I assume the story takes place in New York. It seemed like a New York story. So I checked, and he was born in Brooklyn. <laughs> this excellent boxer was born in Brooklyn. So why did I bring that up? Because somebody up there likes me. <laughs> Who is that? Actually, it's not so much that somebody up there likes me. It's somebody up there loves me. Somebody up there is compassionate to me. So we chanted earlier, by revealing and disclosing, you could just say, by revealing and disclosing ourselves, we never fail to receive profound help from Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. In some sense, zazen is to show yourself, to reveal yourself, to show your body in the world. Say, here's my body. Here's my effort. Here's what I'm offering right now to, to the welfare of the world. And in offering this, it isn't just that you're making an offering, but it's a matching grant. <laughs> and there's a matching grant on the other side. Profound help comes to you when you offer profound help. When you offer your body an upright body, sitting, walking, whatever, standing, when you give that great gift of your body, you receive profound help. You could think, it seems difficult to perform some of these simple practices of compassion, like sickness comes. And I hear the teaching is to be compassionate towards the sickness. To really like open up to it and say, I love you, sickness. I don't like you, sickness, or dislike you, sickness. I love you, sickness. I love you, sickness, in my body. 
I love the sicknesses in other people's bodies. I love the sickness in my mind. I love the sickness in other people's minds. I love all sentient beings. I've heard that if I do love all sentient beings, I will enter reality, or there will be entry into reality. So I practice generosity towards all difficulty. I, I rather, I aspire to practice generosity, compassion in the form of generosity. I aspire to practice that towards all sickness and all pain, mental and physical, in all beings. Simple. Just welcome every single thing that ever is given to you. Very simple. Just say thank you very much to whatever is given to you. Whatever arises in your mind, in your karmic consciousness, whatever arises, just simply say thank you very much. And say it until you believe it. Say it until it like feels authentic. Not believe it. Say it until you feel like, that's really congruent with me. That's the way I really am. I actually do feel grateful to this karmic consciousness. I do feel grateful to this story. Even though it's a story of pain and suffering, I feel grateful that I'm here to welcome this suffering. I've been aspiring to this, and this moment, finally, I'm actually practicing compassion. And then sometimes you enter reality, too. But sometimes people say, and, I, and uh, sometimes they say, it's hard. <laughs> and then I say, right. That's right. It is hard, usually. Not always. After you enter reality, it's kind of not hard anymore. But if, you're, if we're out of touch with reality, it sometimes, not always, is hard to welcome some guests. Some really unhappy guests are hard to welcome. Some really unskillful guests, some really violent, cruel guests are hard to welcome. And also it's hard to be just to some people when they're really being unjust. It's hard to be just. The practice is very simple. The practice is be just to the unjust. That's the practice. Bring justice to injustice. That's the practice. Very simple, but hard sometimes. Now, it would be, it is impossible if you think of doing it alone. In fact, you, this is not done alone. If you're doing it alone, you're not doing it correctly. You do it together with everybody. You do it together with everybody. And part of everybody is great beings, great enlightening beings and Buddhas. That's part of everybody. So you need all living beings who have various levels of understanding and aspiration and practice of compassion. And you need the ones who are really good at compassion. And they are available. So it is said by this person named Dogen, this person named Dogen who teaches 
a zazen which is enlightenment, he teaches also that when you practice, when you give a gift, when you reveal and disclose yourself in your sincerity and your insincerity, when you do that, you receive immeasurable help from Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and ancestors. That's what the Zen ancestor Dogen says in the vow we chanted earlier. So he's teaching a zazen which is enlightenment, and the zazen which is enlightenment is to reveal and disclose yourself. Give yourself, to donate yourself every moment of sitting. You're giving yourself to the welfare of all beings, just as you are. You're giving yourself, but it's not a, what call it, it's not a sealed envelope. The envelope is open, you're saying, I'm giving this person. This is what Dogen says is the practice. And you're getting a lot of help. So also, not only are you revealing and disclosing yourself and giving yourself and practicing ethics and patience and concentration and wisdom, but you're getting a lot of help to do that from other beings who are doing the same practices. So your sitting is, could be seen, it's up to you, it could be seen as an invocation that you're sitting to invite your support so that your sitting can be complete. I cannot, we cannot practice the sitting of the Buddhas. We cannot practice sitting which is enlightenment. We cannot practice enlightenment by ourselves. This very clear teaching that the practice of enlightenment is done together with everybody. So, the people who want to help us are available, but if we don't invite them, they won't come. However, there's a certain understanding which is that even if we don't know it, we're inviting them. So, the most fundamental level is we are inviting them and they are responding. We're asking for support and they're giving it, but we don't, it, it's not mixed with our perception. And that level of communion in enlightenment, or that level of enlightened communion between ourselves and all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, that level is what's described in what we'll chant at noon service, if we have noon service. It's described in that chant. It talks about what it's like when we are asking for the support of all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and they give it. It describes that intimate dance between all living beings and all realized beings. Where realized beings say, do you want to dance? And sentient beings say, yes. And sentient beings say, do you want to dance to the Buddhas? And the Buddhas say, yes. It's described there. But then in the middle of the text, it says, all this, however, does not appear within perception because it is unconstructedness and stillness. It is immediate realization. In immediate realization, you can't see how you're asking for help and how it's being met. 
in delayed realization. You can see, I asked and, and I was responded to. But in immediate realization, in the, in the zazen that I speak of, you're requesting and being met and there's no recognition. And then he says, that which can be met with recognition is not realization itself. It is a recognition of realization, which is sometimes very encouraging, but it's not the realization itself. The realization itself, just like recognition of a dance, is pretty neat sometimes if you see some people dancing. And you might even be one of the dancers. And you might say, oh, we're dancing. But the dance is not the recognition of the dance. So this, this zazen practice actually is not something that a person does by herself. It's the way she is interacting with all beings. That's the actual zazen practice. And that zazen practice does not mix with our perception of zazen practice. It's not separate. Like if you see yourself sitting, like you look down, you see your legs there on the mat, Yes, that's, you're having a perception of your legs in sitting posture. Okay? And you can recognize it, but that's not zazen itself. Zazen itself is the way, is the practice you have, which is the same as the practice of everybody else in the room. And it's the same as the practice of everybody out in the street. And it's the same as the practice of all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And that, the way you're here with the body in sitting posture. That's the same enlightenment and same practice as all beings. That's Zazen that Dogen is teaching. And that Zazen is very simple and difficult, but with the aid of all beings, that Zazen can be realized. One again, once again, I'm tempted to say, with the aid of all beings, you can realize that Zazen. But it's more like, with the aid of all beings, that zazen can be realized as you. Because you, you do not realize it. It's realized together with everybody. So everybody realizes your zazen practice as you. And if you don't think that way about zazen, if you think it's something you can do, uh, some Zen teachers will yell at you, but some may be quiet. But whether they yell at you or not, they're just being kind to you to show you that you should really be, if you're kind enough to the thought that you're practicing zazen, you will get over that. And you'll enter reality, which is enlightenment, which is the practice, which you, are, you and all beings are doing. That's the practice that Dogen wants to emphasize because I guess it's kind of division of labor that some people are putting a lot of energy into teaching the kind of zazen which leads to realization, and he wants to demonstrate the zazen that occurs in realization. Zazen is, that he's speaking of, is in realization.
Uh, so, in a sense, I could say my job is to, is to give myself away, is to offer my body and mind moment by moment to the practice. With the understanding that this offering is not trying to get anything, but it is actually uh, requesting a gift. So I'm requesting a gift without trying to get it. The gift I, would re- I request is to be met by all beings. So I offer myself so that all beings can offer themselves. That's my job, is to offer myself. However, I can also offer you. I can offer my life to the practice, and I can also offer yours. I can see you sitting, and I say, I offer his practice to the Buddhas. I offer his practice to the Buddhas. I offer all of our practice to the Buddhas. And when we, when we do our... Uh, part of bodhisattva practice is to, is to dedicate people's practice. So we do that. At the end of chanting, we offer our chanting practice to the Buddhas. I offer mine, but I, I also offer yours. You offer yours, and you offer, and you offer mine. That could be seen as rude, I suppose, that I'm offering your practice without asking if it's okay if I offer your practice. But I'm not taking anything from you when I offer it. I'm, not ta- I'm receiving you. You give yourself to me so I can give you away to the welfare of all beings. Whatever your practice is, you give it to me. Whatever your practice is, you give it to everyone. And then when everybody receives your practice, they can then give it again. This is the zazen that I'm speaking of. And it completely includes uh, I do zazen, zazen. The zazen of all beings completely includes the beings who think that they're doing zazen by themselves, by their own power. They're totally included in that. The zazen which is enlightenment is compassionate towards the zazen which is still trying to get something for somebody in particular, rather than everybody. The zazen which is enlightenment is not trying to get anything. It can't get anything. It is actually everything. It's not separate from anything, so it can't get anything. Bodhisattvas aspire to that zazen, but they sometimes slip into, I do zazen, zazen. And when they do, they aspire to be compassionate to, I do zazen, zazen. And they might even apologize. I'm sorry, great ancestors, that I, was, that I was doing a zazen that I thought I could do by myself. I'm sorry. Now I'm going to go back and donate myself to the zazen, which everybody supports me to practice, which is not a separate practice, but the same practice as all beings and the same enlightenment as all beings.
and again, by revealing and disclosing my self-centered idea of practice before the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, I will receive immeasurable help. And the root of that self-centered attitude towards Zazen will melt away. And then the self-centered Zazen will melt away because the root melt away. So then there's going to just be another Zazen, which is the non-self-centered Zazen, which is the, the Zazen of all beings, the enlightenment of all beings. Very simple in a way, once, you, once I finish saying it. But hard because of our karmic background, which is many, many instances, infinite, more or less, almost infinite instances of thinking in terms of I practice. I'm separate from others, and I'm separate from the practice, and I would like now to actually realize non-separation from people by being compassionate to them and to my idea of separation. And I understand that if I'm kind to my idea of separation, I will enter the reality of non-separation. And it's hard. And that's why I need aspiration to do this really hard thing. So when the people come tomorrow, I'll bring up this invoking the presence again. So maybe the fact that you've been exposed to it, you can help them tolerate this strange idea (laughs) that we're sitting here invoking the presence of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Like Dogen, may they be compassionate to us and free us from karmic effects. Great Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, come and help us practice Zazen unselfishly. Please come and help us practice unselfish Zazen. And one, and one of the ways you get them to help is just by revealing, I just did a moment of selfish Zazen there. I just sat Zazen selfishly for a flash of a second. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> When you reveal that, you receive immeasurable help at that moment. However, that help is not mixed with your perceptions, doesn't appear within perception, because the help is inconceivable, unmade enlightenment in stillness. So now, I invite responses. If there are any questions, please come up. Can you come up here? You can bring some questions if you want. There's one up here for you. (laughs) Mitch brings a lot. I know. Not very flexible. You're not very. Do you aspire to be flexible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah. He aspires to be flexible. 
That's one of the bodhisattva aspirations, is to be flexible. I'll tell you a story about that later. <laughs> you talk about compassion, loving kindness, bringing justice to the unjust. Yes, right. And I, and I think of it maybe in an extreme case, I look at a guy in Syria, I think Assad, and he's killing all his people. Yeah. I find it very hard to have any compassion or loving kindness for him. And the only justice I'd like to see is him being in jail for the rest of his life. And is, how does that, you know, how do I okay, deal you, with that? You, you know? just said it at the beginning that you're not very flexible. <laughs> right? Right, right. And I said to you, did I ask you if you aspire to be flexible? Yes. Okay, and you said yes? Yes. Okay, so this is an example, opportunity to be flexible. Uh -huh. So, I wish, him to, I wish justice to be brought to him too. I wish to have a just response to whatever he is. And you said the only, the only justice you can imagine was such and such, you mm -hmm. know? That's the only one you could imagine. Mm -hmm. So here's an opportunity for you to be more flexible. Mm -hmm. Imagine other possibilities, mm -hmm. in other words. Mm -hmm. So I wish, him, I wish justice to be brought to the Syrian people. I wish, including their leader who seems to be in, incredibly cruel, it seems. That's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. It looks like immense injustice. And I wish to bring in justice to that. Mm -hmm. But being flexible about what the justice would look like would be appropriate for bodhisattvas. Mm -hmm. Not to decide beforehand what the justice is going to look like mm -hmm. is compatible with achieving justice. Mm -hmm. So you, you, want the, you want there to be justice, you want there to be peace, okay? Mm -hmm. And then, but you're aspiring to be flexible about how to negotiate it, how to realize it, mm -hmm. okay? Rather than say, this is the only just thing I can see. Mm -hmm. Okay. In terms of compassion, I'm supposed to, that, that's comp being compassionate to him, I mean, I feel I have again. Can you can you can you say thank you very much to him? Isn't that hard? This very is hard. Yeah. I'm am telling you that in in the Buddha's heart, the Buddha is saying thank you very much to him. The Buddha thinks that what he's doing is totally antithetical. The Buddha is totally into nonviolence. <laughs> <laughs> And when the Buddha sees violence, the Buddha practices compassion towards violence. Mm -hmm. The Buddha is not violent towards violence. Mm -hmm. The Buddha is non-violent, mm -hmm. is truly compassionate, mm -hmm. wishes violent people to snap out of their insanity mm -hmm. and be kind. Mm -hmm. Buddha wishes every cruel person to snap out of that cruelty mm -hmm. and be kind. Mm -hmm. Buddha says, I'm your friend, I'm your teacher, I'm your father, I'm your mother, mm -hmm. I love you, I want you to wake up out of this horror, out of this nightmare of cruelty. I want you to wake up. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want them to stay in the nightmare mm -hmm. and, and, and experience all kinds of hell. Mm -hmm. He wants them to wake up out of it. She's constantly wishing for all beings at all the different levels of cruelty 
All of us have sometimes been cruel. Mm -hmm. The Bodhisattva, the Buddha, the Bodhisattva aspires <clears throat> to the state of loving all beings and wishing the most deluded and the not so deluded and the little bit deluded, mm -hmm. all the deluded beings, wishing them all to wake up mm -hmm. and be actually become helpers to the other people who haven't, mm -hmm. if there are any. So could you want these people who are so powerful and so crazy, could you want them to wake up? And could you say, thank you very much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming into my life and giving me an opportunity to practice kindness towards you. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to wish you well, mm -hmm. to, to practice loving kindness towards you. And actually, thank you for showing me that my loving kindness is limited because I'm having trouble actually wishing you loving kindness. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, and like you're easy to welcome. You haven't you haven't been cruel in my presence yet. <laughs> <laughs> I aspire to be. I aspire to welcome you, even if you get nasty to me. Or nasty to somebody else here. But it's okay that you're making it easy. I don't mind. <laughs> so the story of flexibility is my famous story of, with my wife. We're having dinner with some people, uh, and the, the the male member of the heterosexual couple <laughs> is a professor at UC. California, at Irvine, California. My wife says to him, what's Irvine like? And he says, it's beautiful. And his wife says, it's ugly. <laughs> and he says, it's ugly. And my wife turns to me and says, you should learn that. <laughs> so, since she said I should learn it, I learned it. And now I'm totally flexible. <laughs> Bodhisattvas, in order to enter reality, you have to be flexible. So Bodhisattvas are working on their flexibility. It's part of their work. They aspire. They're not yet flexible enough to enter reality. But they, when they notice their tension, their, their stiffness, their rigidity, they practice compassion towards their stiffness and rigidity and lack of flexibility. They practice compassion towards lack of flexibility. Compassion towards lack of flexibility. And the first way to practice compassion towards lack of flexibility is to say thank you very much. The second way is be careful of it. If you're not flexible, you should be careful. You know. Don't, do, don't stretch that much if you're not flexible. That's too, that, that stretch is not appropriate for you at this point. You should just bend over that this far. Not, don't go that much too much for you. Be careful. Once you say, okay, tension, okay, stiffness, welcome, great. Now be careful. And then be patient for how long it takes for this rigidity and inflexibility to start loosening. And realize 
it's taking a long time, but my patience practice is growing on this inflexibility. How wonderful, you know? I may never become flexible, but my patience practice may really flower under this situation of inflexibility. But if your patience practice gets strong enough, you'll discover there's flexibility in the middle of it, and you'll relax. Any other offerings today? Yes, please come. Yeah, please come. Can you sit on that cushion for a little while? Sure. Okay. Um, my question is in the way you were describing Dogen's Zazen. Um, I think you said um, that the way Dogen understands us and the way he describes it is in enlightenment. Yeah. And the question is whether you feel that that being the case, Dogen's texts are not necessarily the most helpful to beginners. Um, or people who haven't entered reality yet, and if that's the case, whether there are other texts or other sources um, of study that might be more relevant. For some people, I would not bring up uh, Dogen's Zazen practice. For some people, I would bring up Zazen, which is like learning to be generous and kind towards their body. That I noticed that they're, that they're not practicing generosity. So I would try to... Exactly, I, st I stop now, okay? I start over. What I would do with the person, first of all, before I didn't check with you all to see if you had bodhisattva aspirations. Right? <laughs> I just came in here and started talking to you about it. And I didn't check with you whether you wanted to learn about Dogen's uh, Zazen practice. I just told you. But now you're bringing it up. So maybe it wasn't appropriate that I brought it up to some of you. But before I brought it up, I did mention being compassionate, first of all. Right? So, but actually I shouldn't even say that. I should say, which I did, what's your aspiration? I asked you at the beginning, what's your aspiration? And not everybody told me my aspiration is bodhisattva aspiration. And I understand that. So what I'm telling you is practices for that aspiration, but I'm also telling you that if you would tell me personally what your aspiration was, I might bring up Dogen's Zazen, or I might bring up Zazen in the form of being generous, if you told me a certain aspiration. If you told me other aspirations, I might bring up something different. So actually, each person requires, or it's appropriate to give each person a specific teaching just specially suited for them. So I don't know, uh, but I actually I do know, I do know that anybody will do well to practice generosity. If they have bodhisattva aspiration, 
then not only do they do well to do it, but that definitely is the first practice for them. If people aspire to be cruel, then in some ways generosity isn't appropriate. <laughs> so if I say, if somebody says, I really want to be cruel to someone, I, say, well, I might say, well, then don't be generous towards them. <laughs> and don't be generous to yourself. Because if you're generous to yourself, that will undermine your cruelty. It'll be harder for you to be cruel to people if you're really generous. So stay away from generosity if you want to be cruel. Also, don't be careful. Be mind, don't be very mindful, and you'll probably be very successful at being cruel. Like drive, get in the car, and put a blindfold on and start driving. <laughs> you know? So if someone, if someone actually said that to me, I, I, would, I think I would instruct them how to be cruel. And hopefully in the instruction they would change their mind. But I would, I would say, actually, let me go with you. Like I said, somebody said before, if somebody was going to do something unskillful, what would you do? I would go with them. Rather than just say, don't do it, and then they go off without my attendance, I would say, may I come with you while you rob the bank or whatever. But I still might be kind of a trouble, some assistant. Like I might ask lots of questions. <laughs> you know, like, do you really think this is going to be beneficial? And so on. So, in such a case, I would work on basic bodhisattva compassion practices with everybody. And some people I might realize in the process that they're ready for this supremely advanced practice, which is the practice that we do together with all beings. So, but if I, if, I, if I notice that there, if I say, uh, uh, you know, if I start talking about practicing compassion and they don't want to do it, I wouldn't bring up Dogen. I would try to establish a basis to receive that teaching. Because you can't really receive that teaching if you don't want to practice compassion. But in this room, I felt, I felt openness to practicing compassion from this group. So I thought, well, if they're open to compassion, maybe they're open to reality. So I'll tell them what Zazen really is. You know, Zazen's really, you know, this amazing thing we're all doing together with all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. That's what it actually is. So if you could stand the other stuff I said, maybe probably can stand that. But I didn't say it right at the beginning. I warmed the group up a little bit <laughs> with all these discussions. <coughs> but I wouldn't say that when I first met someone. I wouldn't. But in this context, with people sitting and me bringing these things up and people seem to be open to it, then I finally have gotten to the place of talking about enlightened practice, the practice of enlightenment. But I wouldn't bring that up probably with people right away. I wouldn't. But I probably would bring up, I usually would bring up, generosity. And, and in order to practice generosity, I have to bring up awareness because you have to be aware of something in order to be generous towards it. So the first thing I bring up is like awareness. But again, I looked in the room and everybody seemed to be aware because they like got to their seats. <laughs> they got there before the period started. You know, They seem to stay until it ends. They seem to be aware. They have postures that they're working on moment by moment. So this it looks like they're actually practicing awareness, that they're aware of something, of a body and a mind. So now I can say, why don't you be compassionate to that body and mind that you're aware of? But if they're running all over the place and distracted, I think the first thing I would do is say, sit down, children. <laughs> sit down, sit at your seats. And if they could do that, I'd say, okay, now that you're there, what's happening? 
And they say, wah. So we'll just be compassionate to that. And then gradually, after a couple of days, we're talking about this amazing practice of enlightenment. Yeah, I, I, the reason, um, one of the reasons I was thinking about that is because this is really the first time I've heard Dogen being introduced in this way. And um, I've recently read Uchiyama Roshi's Opening the End of Thought. And it seems from that book as if he's, he offers Dogen as the first and most immediate um, persons whose text to study for anyone. Uh, I think there's a place where he even makes the point where it's for absolute everybody, uh, lay people and, and so on. And that's, that's why I wanted to be clear on that distinction. Um, I agree with him. And at the same time, you, you, you brought this question up. Would I teach that aspect of Dogen to a beginner? And so, uh, I might not. <clears throat> so, he sees Dogen, and I do too, as teaching the way of encouraging people to be aware of themselves, to study themselves. And he thinks, and I agree, that it's appropriate for everybody to study themselves. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. I totally agree with that. And that's appropriate for everybody. Like, what is it? Uh, people say to uh, children, you know, look at what you're doing. You should have your head examined. <laughs> In other words, look at, your, look at your head. Look at what you're thinking. I agree with that. I'm just mentioning that this practice of studying yourself is difficult, and I think it's good to. And I, I, I mentioned it, but actually everybody tells me it's hard too. They say, "You said to study yourself, but I can't find it." Blah blah. <laughs> so yeah, study the self is for everybody, and a lot of people who try to do it have a hard time. So then I say, "Well, let's be kind. Let's be kind to how hard it is to study the self, and let's be kind to the self you're studying. Let's be kind to everything you're thinking." I think that's for everybody. And then I just happened to mention, which may not be for everybody, that you're not going to be successful at that unless you realize you're doing it together with everybody. So this is a teaching for everybody to practice with everybody. And I agree that's for everybody too. But some people, if you tell them it's a practice to do with everybody, they'll walk out. But I think that is a practice to tell everybody that we're doing a practice so if they do it with everybody, I think that is for everybody. But the timing is very important. So I agree with him. It's Dogen. I, I agree with Dogen as a, as a teaching for everybody, for lay and monastic. I agree. But still, as you say, when I bring up this kind of teaching, you wonder, is that teaching for everybody? I think it's for everybody at a certain time. Thank you very much. Anything else this morning? Anybody?
Oh, yes, please. You don't have to uh, raise your hand. You can just come up. I just wanted to follow up with what Yael said. Yes. Um, and we spoke last night, and it was very, very helpful. So I guess I just wanted to say it again out loud okay. in front of everybody. Um, I, I, too, had have had ongoing concerns or struggles with teachings about waking up or enlightenment. And um, because, and as I mentioned to you, it, it brings up my gaining mind. <laughs> and um, I found it so helpful for you to tell me yesterday or to help me see that with the great aspiration, with this teaching, the gaining mind or the grasping mind will arise with it. And so it is, this is, a, at least as I understand what you said, so that it's an opportunity, that the great aspiration is also an opportunity to get to see the, um, the deluded mind and then get to practice with it. So if I stayed away from my aversion to this teaching of enlightenment, um, to entering reality and all of the, the, the movements of my mind and the grasping and the where am I on that, I, 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 I get to see it. <laughs> and then after I met with you, I got to be kind to it. And um, it's no longer a problem. Right? Then I'm more open to understanding it. Could you hear her okay? Mm -hmm. Hmm? Mm -hmm. Could I compliment what you said? That was good. <laughs> you want to compliment it again? Sure. <laughs> I heard you say that when, when a great aspiration arises, a gaining mind arises with it. Okay? Another way to say it would be what, whatever mind arises, the gaining mind comes with it. <laughs> However, when a great aspiration arises, you sometimes notice the gaining mind. So the great aspiration <clears throat> flushes out certain gaining minds which you don't notice for, for lesser aspirations. You know, like again, if you aspire to lunch, you don't notice that actually there was a gaining mind there. But there probably is. Unless, you unless, you, unless we have practiced lots of compassion towards the gaining mind, it's probably still there. In fact, the gaining mind is a mind that lives when it's not completely overwhelmed by compassion. Mm -hmm. We want compassion, but because we haven't received enough, we think that receiving compassion would be a gain rather than reality. Mm -hmm. So, the great aspirations of bodhisattvas brings all the poisons out in the open. And then when they're out in the open, then the bodhisattva practices compassion towards them. And as they practice compassion towards them, their aspiration becomes even more spectacular. You know, more people are, can see it. More, there's more spectators. And then when the aspiration gets bigger, even more subtle and sneaky gaining ideas come out in the open 
and then the Bodhisattva practices compassion to them, and the aspiration grows. It just keeps growing and growing and, and surfacing more and more subtle uh, sicknesses that came from not realizing compassion, and then the Bodhisattva practices compassion towards them. So a lot of people, again, when they hear about the aspiration, they're horrified by this thing that comes up along with the aspiration that they hear about. And they say they want to turn the aspiration off so that this gaining mind will go away. Right? If I don't want if I don't if I don't aspire to that, I don't notice what a creep I am. <laughs> if my aspirations are low enough, I feel like, hey, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> but if I see somebody else that's really great, I start to feel bad. And then if I would aspire to be like them, and these other aspects of myself come out, I feel really regretful and embarrassed. But that's what bodhisattvas need. That's, that's what everybody needs to get their stuff out. Mm-hmm. It isn't like, talk badly about yourself, and then the, if you talk badly about yourself, the stuff will just stay hiding. But great aspirations bring it all out. And then we aspire to be compassionate to all this stuff. That was my compliment to what you said. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Whoop, take your time, Stuart. No hurry. Rabbi, I've been hesitating to, to discuss this, except perhaps in a private book or something, because I didn't want to seem rude, but then I figured you didn't care anyway, so I'll just say it. <laughs> um, I want to go back to the part of the teachings you discussed the last couple of days about uh, the karmic mind and, and the subconscious mind that okay. supports it. Talking about the karmic consciousness and the storehouse consciousness, the active consciousness and the unconscious. And and, um, so I listened to you, you explained it on uh, Wednesday and repeated it on Thursday. And my reaction to it was, was um, a couple of parts. One is, do I need to know this? I understand practice. I understand this is the actions to follow. But do I need the backstory, so to speak, uh, that that describes these supposed flows? And and the second thing that occurred to me these supposed what flow flows of uh-huh. karma or uh-huh. the supposed flows of karmic cause and effect. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're wondering, do I need to know that? Right. Okay. And, and part of that, uh, sort of a permutation on that thought is, um, well, that's a nice way to describe it. It's a nice story. But it sounds like a story that people made up to explain something. But it's just a story. I agree. It's just a story. So, and the person who is sending this story 
is one of the great teachers of that fact that what he's sending is a story. He wants us all to wake up to that what we're thinking is a story. Hmm. So if it's, I guess I, I'm asking, is it okay if I just practice without paying attention to that part of the story, to that story? Definitely. Definitely. And you want me to compliment that? Not <laughs> <laughs> particularly. <laughs> you don't want to? If you wish. Not particularly. I would like to. Will you allow me to? Yes, of course. Okay. Uh, shortly after I came to Zen Center, uh, I was going to go to the Zen Center's monastery for a practice period. And I heard that the teacher, Suzuki Roshi, was teaching the Lotus Sutra. So I started studying it before I went to this training period. And I opened it up, and uh, I think I read about one page, <laughs> and maybe a page and a half. But the first page has a list, it had the lists of bodhisattva's names in Sanskrit. This was a translation from Sanskrit into English, which was made in the 19th century. And I didn't finish, I don't think I finished the list of names of the bodhisattvas who were at the assembly where the teaching was given. I just closed the book. I kind of thought, well, I don't think I need to read this now. So I would think that any kind of teaching that comes to you, if you feel like, well, I don't know if this is really apropos from my practice right now, I think it's fine to say, I, I think, right, it's not, I, right now I don't think I need to study this, or dash, right now I don't feel enthusiastic about studying it. So I'd like to, I would generally encourage people, work on the aspect of practice that you feel most enthusiastic about, and your enthusiasm will spread. So as you, as you know, we have this chant called, which goes, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them, or I Enter them, it doesn't literally say enter, it says, I vow to learn them, I vow to master them. Mm -hmm. So, but still, we're not going to master them if we're not enthusiastic about studying them. So here's a Dharma door of the Lotus Sutra, I said, later. Here's a Dharma door of an of a ancient teacher, teaching about how the mind works. It's for bodhisattvas. The Lotus Sutra, the Buddha says over and over again in the Lotus Sutra, this teaching is for bodhisattvas. And Asanga is saying, this teaching is for bodhisattvas. So I thought, oh, I should probably study it. So I tried, and I, but I didn't feel enthusiasm. Now, I'm, now I feel enthusiasm for this teaching from 4th century India, and you're hearing it, and you say, well, I don't feel enthusiastic about it. So I would usually say, well, study what you do feel enthusiastic about. Study the practice that you do feel enthusiastic about. Study the teachings you do feel enthusiastic about. And from that enthusiasm, your practice will thrive. And it will spread. So a couple years later, I went you know, and opened the Lotus Sutra again. And closed it again. <laughs> and then I opened it again. And closed it again. And then I opened it. And the enthusiasm came. You know, it was like the lights went on, it was time. So 
it's very important for you to be honest, like you are right now, saying, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I'm just not feeling enthusiastic about this particular study. And I would say you have my full support to just respectfully set it down. And But as a bodhisattva, you might say, later. Maybe later I'll check it out again. It might be a lot later. But for now, I have the certain things I really feel good about, and I'd like to focus on those. And I, that, I give you my full support for that, because that's what I'm doing. I'm focusing on what I feel enthusiastic about. So this just happens to be you know, the new leaf for me. I'm very enthusiastic about it. It follows from my evolution as a student. This is my current you know, passion. I'm sharing it with you. But if you feel like, well, okay, but maybe later, or maybe never. Um, take back never. I <laughs> vow someday to enter all those Dharma doors. And also Dogen said when he was dying, concerning the Buddha Dharma, there are 10 million things that I have not yet mastered. But I have the joy of correct faith, which is I wish to master all teachings eventually. But today I'd like to work on the ones, this isn't Dogen talking, this is you and me. Today, let's work on the ones we feel real enthusiasm for. Thank you. Thank you very much. And when you do this, you probably, other people also probably feel that they also, if they don't feel enthusiastic, they also are welcome to set it aside. And asking it, in, in this situation, other people get to see that, that this is, you know, you, you encourage other people to take care of themselves too. So that's one advantage of asking it in a sangha. Although privately would have been fine too. <laughs> Bodhisattvas in the scriptures often do ask questions of people. And often the Buddha says, I know you asked that question for the welfare and happiness of many beings. In other words, I know you know the answer already, but you're asking it because other people want to hear that question and see the response. So bodhisattvas ask questions. Sometimes they want to know the answer, but they're always asking questions for the whole community. So it really is good to ask questions. And some people think that when they ask questions of the teacher, some, afterwards, sometimes people say, that was kind of disrespectful that you asked that question. But the teacher usually feels like, no, I really part of respect is to question the teacher, or even question the validity of what the teacher's saying. That's really part of, of Dharma health. not be the only one who did not feast on this buffet. Um, you could not be what? The only person who did not feast on this buffet. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
My question, I think um, it's implicit, but I'm wondering whether um, you could make explicit um, what the relationship between um, you know, being a bodhisattva is and aspiring to the well-being of all people and relieving personal suffering. Well, in fact, all personal happiness comes from devotion to the welfare of others. All true happiness in life, all great happiness comes from devotion to the welfare of others. But if you're primarily concerned for your own welfare, that's the source of all misery. If I'm primarily concerned with myself, that's that's where small and great misery comes from. <clears throat> now, if one knows that if you're devoted to the welfare of others, that you'll be happy, that's okay. But you're primarily concerned for the welfare of others. That makes you happy. And bodhisattvas actually showing people how, what a happy life is. They want people to see what a happy life is, so they want to show them a happy life is being devoted to others. So they're devoted to others, and they say, see, I'm devoted to others, and am I happy? And people say, you seem to be. And so, again, you, it's a story, right? The Bodhisattva is enacting a story, and then people look at that story, and they say, oh yeah, it looks like people who are devoted to the welfare of others are happy people. And it looks like people who are concerned for their own welfare, primarily, they're the miserable people. They're in this rut of self-concern. And that seems, you know, that's their first concern all the time. Me, 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 me. And also they feel, and those who are devoted to the welfare of others also practice compassion towards themselves because if you don't practice compassion towards yourself, towards what, what coming up in your own mind, then you have trouble being compassionate to other people. If your own confusion, you, you meet with stinginess or put it the other way, if you meet your own confusion with generosity, then when you meet confused people, you're generous with them too. If you're patient with your own confusion, when you see other people's confusion, you can be patient with it. So working on yourself is the basis, being compassionate to yourself is the basis for being compassionate to others. But again, bodhisattvas are practicing compassion for themselves for the benefit of others to show them how to do it, because that's what they don't know how to do if they're miserable. So is it essential to practice compassion towards others in order to, I mean, I think you've said that, um, in order to feel, um, in order to relieve one's own <coughs> Suffering, like is yes, that? Yes, or is it's essential. It's it's essential. I say it's essential. In order to relieve my own suffering, I have to practice compassion towards others. Yes. Thank you.
can you compassionately sit down? I'm not being so compassionate on hungry lunch goers. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to ask the question. I just want to make sure that I heard you correctly. Okay. That with the aspiration yes. of a bodhisattva, uh, I, we, you need to be thankful for everything. Right. And that the reason that we have to be thankful is to cultivate compassion. Right. And that includes, and that that compassion with time transforms the storehouse of consciousness. Yes. For all beings. For all beings. For the whole world. For the whole world. For Assad, for Hitler, for everybody. So, in Zazen, as walking, talking Zazen, every delusion that arises when sitting is actually a, a gift. Correct. Well, it is, and you, you, you meditate on that. You practice the yoga of remembering that every delusion that arises is a gift. And you say thank you. And when you say thank you, and you see it as a gift, you're practicing giving too. And you say thank you for giving me the opportunity, delusion, to practice compassion. Everything but Buddhas is objects of compassion. And a lot of delusion means lots of opportunities for lots compassion. Lots of opportunities for compassion. Lots of opportunities for generosity, mm -hmm. for gratitude, and also for <coughs> vigilance, mm -hmm. you know, for being careful. Mm -hmm. Part of compassion is to be careful of delusions. Right. Like, you know, it looks like you can put your foot there, but that might be a delusion, so I'm going to put my foot down carefully. Oh, actually, it's too soft there. I'm going to fall through the floor. Right. It looks like that car will drive, but I'm going to be careful. And ask, did you check the brakes? So part of compassion is being careful mm -hmm. and questioning and vigilant, especially if we're dealing with confusion. Confusion mm -hmm. is very dangerous unless you pay close attention to it. Mm -hmm. But if you place close attention to it, like, like to a great wave, you can become a good surfer of delusion. Oh, that's very good. But if you're not watching out, the delusion can smash you to smithereens. Right, right, right. That's and the next aspect of, patient, right. of, of compassion is to be patient with delusions. Delusions can be very painful. Yeah. Like, you know, this person is no good. I'm better than them. They're stupid. These are very painful delusions. Yes. So we have to practice patience with the pain of them. Mm. This person's attacking me. This person's insulting me. To be patient with that. This is compassion. 
And then I also have to work on my aspiration to do these practices right. and so on. All these things are compassion and everything <coughs> deserves these bodhisattva compassion practices. And if we practice compassion towards the worst things, we will liberate the worst things. Mm. If, we're, if we love the world, we can liberate it. But if, we're not, if we don't love the horrible world, we're just contributing to it becoming more horrible. That's all. That's all. If we're disrespectful to horror, we make it worse. My wife just got back from India and she said, you know, it makes perfect sense that Shakyamuni Buddha would come to India. This is the place for a Buddha. It's, it's the realm of pollution. It's the realm of garbage and suffering still after 2,500 years. Now there's a billion people there. Or more than a billion, it's a perfect place for Buddha to come and be compassionate. And of course, Syria and the United States, the same. Everywhere on this world, there's so many opportunities for compassion. And there's not, the only thing that doesn't require compassion, that's not calling for compassion, are fully enlightened Buddhas. However, although they don't need it, they're totally it. They don't need it because they're totally it. And they're trying to get everybody else to join the compassion program. But they don't themselves need it because they are it. But even great bodhisattvas need it. So let's give it. Let's practice compassion towards whatever arises, so-called in ourselves, or what we think others are giving to us, but what we think others are giving to us is really ourselves. <clears throat> Who we think are our friends and our enemies, that's our mind. So we should be kind to everyone, everything, because that means we're being kind to our mind. If we're kind to our mind, our mind will become liberated, and then compassion will be unhindered. And this is what bodhisattvas think is cool. <laughs> so I can't even deny that uh, I'm a sattu, right? Uh, what you're saying. Bodhisattvas see a cruel person as themselves. Okay. I mean, advanced bodhisattvas. <laughs> <laughs> bodhisattvas who have been so kind uh -huh. to what they thought was not themselves. Hmm and so kind to what they thought was themselves, that they enter reality where they realize all beings, and this is another one of Uchiyama's teachings, everybody you meet is yourself. Mm -hmm. Everybody you meet is your true self. <clears throat> the whole universe is your true self. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Do I get a... Uh... You know, like a gold, gold star or something. You get a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, compliment. That's yeah. what I was trying to think of the your word. Your compliment is thank you very much for your question. It helped everybody. Thank you. Okay. Let's be sensitive to time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.